the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This morning, we're going to be thinking together about the question, hasn't science disproved Christianity? How can we, as educated 21st century people, believe this ancient claim that there is a God who made the universe? I'm going to speak for a little while, and then I'm going to leave some time for questions so that you can steer this conversation. But before we grapple with these profound truths, I want to tell you about one of my favorite TV shows, which is the series House MD. Raise your hand. Has anybody else seen House MD? Okay, here's the thing. I have three kids, nine, seven, and one and a half. And every time I have a baby, and pray God I'm past that stage now and I don't have any more, but it would be a great blessing if I do unexpectedly. Um, Every time I have a baby, I have to have a show that's going to get me through the nighttime breastfeeding. Okay, real talk people, especially ladies. If you ever have a baby, you'll be up a lot in the night and you will need a show that is just about enough to keep you awake so you're not kind of collapsing on your child, but is sufficiently mindless that you can process it on zero hours sleep. With my third child, it was House MD. And there's a, I don't know if you've ever seen this show, but in in pretty much every episode, House, who is this hard-bitten Chicago doctor, it's very smart, but very curmudgeonly, has to diagnose a really complicated situation patient who comes in with very strange symptoms. And there's one episode, I think it's in series 7 and episode 23, yes I did a lot of nighttime breastfeeding, where House is presented with this woman who is a performance artist. And she has actually conned her way into the hospital in order to get in front of Dr. House. She's genuinely sick, but she has faked some symptoms, for example she's doped her blood in order to try and confuse Dr. House because she wants her illness to be a performance piece. And when House realizes this, he confronts her and he says, I think you've just figured out you're mortal. Just a bag of cells and waste with an expiration date. You wanted to act out. Perhaps you even prayed for a different outcome. Well, I've got a title for your piece. It doesn't mean anything. This morning, as we think about the relationship between science and the Christian faith, there are four points that I want to make. The first that we touched on yesterday is that Christians literally invented modern science. The second is that the whole of science is a signpost. The third is that Christians have always been leaders in science. And the fourth is that science without Christianity undermines humanity. Rip Christianity out from the foundations of science... And you and I are nothing but bags of cells and waste with an expiration date, and it doesn't mean anything. So number one, Christians invented modern science. If you were here yesterday afternoon, you'll have heard me mention your president, President Halverson's little brother, Hans. 
Um, and we're going to go a little bit deeper into some of the things that, that Hans has taught me, and um, I hope will teach you as well. So Hans Halverson is one of the top philosophers of science in the world. He's a professor of philosophy at Princeton University. And he argues not only is it the case that Christians in history invented what we now call modern science, but they did so not because they were questioning their faith in a creator God, but actually because they believed in a creator God who was both rational and free. So as the people who were shaping what we now see as science looked to the scriptures, they saw a God who was rational and orderly and who had created, according to the scriptures, the universe, according to an orderly plan. And they see a God who gave moral laws to his people that were applicable across time and space. And so they thought, hmm, if this same God created the universe, perhaps he created it according to orderly principles that we as creatures made in his image might be able to discern. That was the first point. But secondly, as they looked at the scriptures, they realized that God is utterly free. God could create a universe in any way he liked. And so the only way to find out what those underlying laws of the universe are is to go and look. As Johannes Kepler, one of the pioneering astronomers, put it, when we do science, we are thinking God's thoughts after him. So that's our first point. Christians invented what we now call science, not as an alternative hypothesis to a creator God, but because they believed in a creator God who is both rational and free. Our second point is this. The whole of science is a signpost. My husband is from Oklahoma, and when I first visited his family there, his sweet grandmother gave me this Bible. I really like this Bible because it's small and it has my name on it, so if it gets lost, it can be returned to me. It fits nicely in my pocket. But there's one thing I don't like about this Bible. It's one of those red-letter Bibles that has the words, the direct speech of Jesus picked out in red. You know the kind? And sometimes people will make the theological mistake of elevating Jesus' direct reported speech above the rest of the scriptures. And they say, you know, this is where we really know God is speaking to us. And the rest of the scriptures, well, I mean, that was written by humans. And they start to go through this process of looking at the scripture and saying, well, you know, this part, I'm seeing this as kind of like 80% divine, 20% human, and maybe here this is like actually 80% human, and maybe God just like dusted a little bit on the the top. So this very unhealthy approach to the scriptures like that, when in fact the whole of this book is written by humans. And the whole of this book is the word of God. And we as Christians can make the same mistake as we look at science. We have a tendency to say, okay, there are parts of the natural world that scientists do not yet understand. And we say, look, that's where God is active. That is miraculous. That is evidence of a creator God. And I'd want to say, yes, that's evidence of a creator God. But so is everything else in this universe. Again, if I think about my own children, none of them were miraculously conceived. I hate to break this to you. Uh, 
if scientists had wanted to, they could have put one of those weird like little video cameras into my womb. You know, you've, in biology class, you sort of see those cameras showing the moment of conception and then this sped-up version of the baby um, as they gestate. I'm pretty convinced that if anyone had bothered to put a camera in my womb, there would be no gaps in the script as my babies grew. And yet, I believe that they are human beings made in the image of God. Not just bags of cells and waste with an expiration date. And in fact, understanding more of them and more of us through science, in the words of Cambridge physics professor Russell Calburn, understanding more of science doesn't make God smaller. It allows us to see his creative activity in more detail. So that's our second point. The whole of science is a signpost. The third point is this. Christians have always been leaders in science. Now, if you listen to folks like Richard Dawkins, you will imagine that the history of science and Christianity has been kind of like a Marvel action hero series where there are these sort of triumphant atheist scientists constantly beating down the evil Christian faith people, right? It's a very distorted view of the history of science. You know, number one, because Christians invented science. Sorry to keep laboring that point, but it's quite, quite important. And number two, because if you look back at the history of, of modern science over the last 400 years, you'll see that Christians have been consistently at the forefront of science. Now, why would you believe me on this? Well, don't. Uh, believe Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein, not a Christian at all, doubtful whether he actually believed in God. One of the top physicists of all history, and he, as he studied, had pictures of three of his great science heroes on the wall of his study. And they were Isaac Newton, James Clark Maxwell, and Michael Faraday. Now, Isaac Newton was not an orthodox Christian because he denied the full divinity of Christ, but he was a very serious believer in a creator God, and he actually wrote more about theology than he wrote about physics. So that was like hero number one. And then James Clark Maxwell and Michael Faraday were both very passionate believers and extraordinary scientists. They were actually both guys who would have loved to come to Covenant College and talk with you you folks if they'd been alive at this time. So from the perspective of sort of Jewish agnostic physics hero Albert Einstein, as he looks back over 400 years of scientific history, those are his big boys, okay? But what about controversial scientific theories like the Big Bang? Now, depending on, on how you were raised and the, the church environments that, that you were in, you may have heard about the Big Bang as a, a triumph of scientific atheism over a Christian belief in a creator God. That's often how that's been sort of played out in, in America in the, in the last few decades. But actually, the theory of the Big Bang was originally devised by a Belgian Roman Catholic priest named George Lemaitre. And the way he conceived it at first, he, he talked about it being like a cosmic egg. That the universe had begun at the, as this tiny, like, incredibly dense, incredibly energetic point, and then had exploded from there. And that term Big Bang was actually made up by an atheist physicist, uh, Fred Hoyle, a contemporary of his, who was kind of laughing at this idea. And it, at the time that this idea was introduced, there was actually quite a lot of resistance among um, some atheist scientists, because it sounded much too much like the biblical account. The idea that the universe has a beginning 
was quite unsettling to scientists of, of that day. So what about evolution? I mean, let's be real. Evolution is like the 10-ton gorilla of the science and faith menagerie or zoo, right? And Charles Darwin is often held up as a, a kind of hero of atheism. But again, if we look at the history, it's a much more complicated picture. If Darwin himself, when asked, is it possible to be an, an atheist, uh, an evolutionist and a serious believer in a creator God, he said absolutely yes. And part of the reason he thought that was because one of his closest collaborators was Harvard professor Asa Gray, who was a very serious Christian, and he was constantly trying to persuade Darwin back into Christianity because as he saw science, it was more and more pointing him toward a creator God. And, and Darwin described Asa Gray as one of the people he most respected as a scientist. And you'll notice if you, if you look closely at every controversy in the history of science and Christianity, you'll actually find Bible-believing Christians on both sides of every debate. Now, this doesn't answer a bunch of questions for us. Of course, there are complicated theological questions for us to, to grapple with. Um, and my guess is that everybody in this room, that there'll be a variety of different views that people take. But this idea that the history of science is a kind of onslaught of atheism against Christianity, with atheism constantly taking ground and Christianity constantly receding, is actually very misleading. As Professor, um, President Halverson mentioned, I spent nearly a decade working with leading Christian professors at major secular universities, and every single area of science that is supposed to have discredited Christianity, you find serious Christians at the very top. I live a short walk from MIT, and there are dozens of professors at MIT who are serious Christians, some who were raised in the faith, and actually others who came to Christ later in life. And then if you think about possibly the most influential and powerful scientist in America today is a man named Francis Collins. He was the head of the Human Genome Project, and he's now the director of the National Institute of Health. And Collins grew up in a non-Christian home, and he transitioned from agnosticism to atheism when he was a student at Yale. But then he went to be a junior doctor working in a hospital. And he remembers the experience of seeing his patients suffer as being profoundly unsettling to him. And he started to notice that his Christian patients seemed to have an enviable way of dealing with their suffering. In particular, there was, there was one woman who was suffering from persistent and uncurable and intense pain and crying out to Jesus in her distress. And one day, as Collins was treating her, she shared her faith in Jesus with him. And then she asked him this simple question. Doctor, what do you believe? And Collins recalls that he felt his face flush as he stammered out, I, I don't really know. He ran out of the room as quickly as he could. But that question from a not very educated, suffering, dying woman started him on a process of discovery that ended in him giving his life to Jesus. So Christians have always been leaders in science. That's our third point. And our fourth point is that science, without Christianity, undermines humanity. 
As Richard Dawkins looks out at the universe, he sees a universe that has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. From his perspective, there is no moral fabric to the universe. Or listen to MIT professor, agnostic physicist and popular science writer Alan Lightman, who when asked about his own beliefs at a public event at MIT said this, our consciousness and our self-awareness create the illusion that we are made out of some special substance, that we have some special ego power, some I-ness, some unique existence when in fact we are nothing but bones, tissues, gelatinous membranes, electrical impulses and chemicals. Do you see what he's saying? Like Dr. House, we're nothing but bags of cells and waste with an expiration date. Or listen to this from Sam Harris, well-known atheist author, who in his 2012 book, Free Will, said, the idea that we as conscious beings are deeply responsible for our mental states and subsequent behaviors is simply impossible to map onto reality. Do you see what Harris is saying? We are not meaningfully moral agents at all. And the more you read of today's atheist and agnostic leaders, the more you realize they don't believe in human beings any more than they believe in God. Now let me be clear, this is not the necessary conclusion of science. This is what Oxford professor and serious Christian Ard Louis calls nothing buttery. When we, we look at the things that science can tell us about a situation or about a being, and we say, you are nothing but these things. Now there's one sense in which that is true. So you could do a full scientific analysis of me, and you could find that I am nothing but bones, tissues, gelatinous membranes, electrical impulses, and chemicals. There is not, there's not a special, it's not like part of my kneecap that isn't any of those things. But actually, that is only one lens through which you can understand who I am. A friend of mine who's an MIT professor, also a Brit, named Ian Hutchinson, uh, he came to Christ actually when he was an undergrad at Cambridge University. He was baptized on his 21st birthday out of a non-Christian family. And he gives an account of himself that's sort of parallel to Alan Lightman's account of us, but has an important difference. He says, yes, I'm an assembly of quarks and leptons. Yes, I'm a complicated biomedical machine. Yes, I'm a mammal. Yes, I'm a human. Yes, I'm a father. Yes, I'm a husband. And none of these explanations rule out the others, and neither did they rule out the reality that I am a sinner saved by grace. Science without Christianity undermines humanity. But Christianity from the first was the foundation of science. From an atheist perspective, you're nothing but a bag of cells and waste with an expiration date and it doesn't mean anything. From a Christian perspective, in the beginning was the word 
and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. As I said, I would love to hear your questions, and I think we have maybe 15 minutes for them. Um, as I said yesterday, I'll take a question from a guy and a question from a girl alternately. Could start with a girl, but let's switch it up. I think there's a gentleman there with a question. Oh, sorry, back, right back there. Do you believe that it is necessary to take a methodologically natural or kind of almost uh, like to set aside our Christian presumptions when we enter into doing science? Ooh, I love that question. I love it because the paper that I most like from your president's little brother is called um, Methodological Naturalism. Something about methodological naturalism. And, and hands, so... So here's one of the basic assumptions of science, or the one of the basic approaches of science, is that we look for natural causes for natural phenomena. So we, we don't look at the lightning that happened last night and say, okay, that was probably divine intervention, and we couldn't find a natural cause for what happened. We look at that and we say, okay, something happened there. There was probably something, na a natural cause for that natural phenomenon. And this principle is sometimes co-opted by atheists to say, well, really, that is functional atheism. Because we're kind of writing God out of the picture. We're not looking in our test tube and saying, I bet God's doing a miracle right here, right now. We're saying, oh, you know, these, these chemicals are producing these other chemicals, and that's how it would have happened, you know, at any time and at any place. Now, Hans very helpfully explains to us that that very method was put in place by Christians not because they didn't believe in God, but because they did. And because they believed that God had created the universe according to these orderly principles. And so we can go and see what those orderly principles are. Now, none of that means that God does not act miraculously in the world. You, you cannot be an Orthodox Christian and not believe in miracles. My children were not the products of a virgin birth. But Jesus was the product of a virgin birth. And actually, um, Ian Hutchinson, who I mentioned earlier, has written a very interesting book called Can a Scientist Believe in Miracles? Uh, where he answers questions that have been put to him by students at, in university events over the last 20 years. Um, and you know, one of the things he's particularly strong on is making the case that actually believing in science and looking for natural explanations for things doesn't at all rule out the possibility of miracles. But it, it, it's interesting to me that even as we look at the scriptures, there are times in the scriptures where God speaks with a voice from the sky. But much more often he sends a prophet. There are times in the scriptures where God brings judgment with like fire from heaven. But actually much more often he'll send an enemy army to invade. And we see this pattern in the scriptures of God using sort of secondary means to accomplish his, his ends. And I think as we look at the, the universe and what we observe of, of natural science, we should expect that usually God is using scientific methods to accomplish his ends, which does not mean that God cannot create miraculous virgin births. We know that he can and does. 
but that is not how he typically operates. I think there's a lady here who has a question. Um, so a lot of people um, would say that, well, scientific consensus, you know, there's all these people who are putting all of their time into um, research and they're very smart people. And if there's just such a vast majority of agreement, you know, um, then we, sh we should just believe them. Mm -hmm. Why should we believe a small mi minority? So what would be the first thing that you would say to that? Important question. So I think what you're pointing to there is that there are certain things that um, some Christians would find theologically troubling for which there's a very strong scientific consensus. Um, and so actually the Big Bang would be one example of, of that. I, if you're someone who, who would want to say, actually I think the universe is, is not old but quite young, then the Big Bang theory is, is problematic to you because it, it's, it's based on the idea that the universe is actually very old. would be one example. Now... As we look at the history of science, we absolutely see that paradigms shift. And again, the Big Bang is a great example. The, the consensus at the time was that the universe was probably uh, pretty much eternal, and there was maybe some sort of steady state fluctuation going on, but not that it had begun at a point and boom. And so it is absolutely the case that, that scientific consensuses can and do shift ma massively. I think sometimes as Christians we kind of anchor ourselves too much on one particular scientific understanding of things. Um, and I think that that can and, and, and does and has sort of got us into a, a bit of a mess at various points in history. So I think we can learn, looking back at the history, we can learn both the lesson that, yes, scientific consensus often change over time, but also, yes, there are, there are times when, when Christians have sort of hung their hat on what seems to be very much the, the wrong thing. And I, I think it's important for us as Christians to have a, a posture of enthusiasm towards science in general, that we are excited to think God's thoughts after him, and that we're not threatened by what we might discover in the natural world. I think it's also really important to understand that however, whatever views we come to about the creation narratives in, in, in Genesis, we should all be able to agree that Genesis is not mostly teaching us about science. And it's like, I, I could put my kids to bed at night and I could say, um, I am your female progenitor, your male progenitor is putting your other mammalian sibling to bed. Um, you are a combination of our DNA um, and you are this, you know, this was your level of gestation in the womb. And I could give them kind of scientific information. And those are all good things that I want them to learn in time and I want them to pursue and be interested in. But actually I say, I am your mother and I love you. And as we read what Genesis tells us about God and about us, I think he's talking about things that are actually more important than science. And I say that as somebody who has a very high view of science. I think science is extremely important. I think it's an extraordinary blessing, and I think it's fascinating. But I don't think it's the most important thing. And I think we sometimes get our, our, ourselves messed up when we think that Genesis is mostly talking to us about science rather than mostly talking to us about our relationship with our creator and with each other. More questions? Um, what is uh, like the best argument you've heard from an atheist to not believe in God, and like, what was your response to it then and your response to it now? 
so to do with science or just in general? Uh, just in general. What's the best atheist argument for not believing in God? I mean, I happen to think that the atheist arguments are quite unpersuasive. Um, I don't think it's suffering, and we'll talk about that tomorrow. I think that's the thing that, from the perspective of many atheists, is the big wrecking ball that destroys Christianity, and I actually think it's the opposite. So it's not suffering. I think the hardest question, and I say this in my book, it's the, what the last chapter is about, I think the reality of hell is the hardest reality, the hardest thing that Christians have to believe, actually, much harder than miracles or God's view of sexuality or how can God allow suffering. All of these questions, in, to me, are actually pretty easy by comparison um, with how can a loving God send people to hell. So were I an atheist trying to unseat my belief rationally, I, I, I might go that direction. Um, and the reason that I'm not drawn to those conclusions is actually almost to go back to that sort of red-letter Bible approach. People sometimes think, if we only listen to what Jesus says, that'll get us off the hook of so many tricky things about Christianity. Oh, no, it doesn't. If we only listen to what Jesus says, we have to grapple with all the hard things that are to be said about Christianity. As well as all the amazing and beautiful things. Jesus is like that. A letter, a letter. Question from a lady or a letter. If you want to write me a letter, that's fine as well. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Earlier on, you said that uh, we think thoughts after God, and I mm. was hoping that you could unpack that qualitatively and quantitatively in Ooh. its nature. I could probably unpack it more qualitatively than quantitatively. I can't even say quantitatively, apparently. Um, so yeah, Johannes Kepler, who is one of the pioneers of the scientific method and an astronomer, said, uh, talked about science as thinking God's thoughts after him. I love that conception. Uh, the, the idea is that if, as we believe, as Christians, God created the universe in all its detail, then as we discover more about how he did that, with sort of thinking his, his thoughts after him, with discovering his, his um, ways of doing things. Um, and I think that that's profoundly exciting and beautiful. And, and friends of mine who are professional scientists, which I'm not remotely, often say that they feel worshipful as they study and as they research because of that excitement of like, oh, I, I, could, I could be the first person to see how God has set this particular thing up. So it might actually give us an, an appetite, an excitement for science, this idea of, of thinking God's thoughts after him. And it should also reassure us that we're not going to discover something in science that somehow unsettles God. I mean, he literally made the universe. So, so nothing that we can discover is going to diminish his glory. And, and one of the odd moves that people sometimes make is to say, oh, you know, you silly Christians... You think that you're so big and important that God made the universe about, all about you. And now we know from science that we're just living on this tiny little planet in this tiny little corner of the universe. And there may even be multiple universes. How can you be so arrogant as to think that you're so big and impressive that God would have created a universe around you? And I think, well, the psalmist says, when I consider the heavens and the work of your hands, the sun and moon that you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? 
The message of the Bible is not that we are so big and important. It is that we are incredibly small and puny and that God has chosen to set his love on us. That the universe itself declares the glory of God and the bigger it gets, the the more that we understand quite how big the universe is and quite how small we are, the better perspective we will have on the majesty of God and our pathetic tininess and the more astounded we will be by the reality of the incarnation and by the beautiful sacrifice of the cross. So why does the God of the universe want you and want me forever? I don't know, but he does. We are at time. Will you guys please thank Dr. McLaughlin?